We get seated. You can open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. As we continue to speak about Arata Galatians on salvation through Christ, we will be entering into God's plan of salvation, which is going to cause us all to think a little bit today. And I know everybody here likes to think. We're a thinking crowd. Prayer for you, but enjoying going through Galatians as much as I've been studying it and teaching it. I didn't hear too many people applaud. Okay. Even if you're lying, that's okay. We'll forgive you. If you open up to your Bibles to chapter 3, I will begin in verse 6. I will read to verse 20. I will speak from verse 15 to verse 20 today. Starting in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as always, as it's ever enlightening, ever challenging, Father God, ever inspiring, ever searching our hearts, Father God. We pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you come and breathe upon the text, upon the sermon, that it come alive to us as it did to Paul and to the Galatian church 2,000 years ago, Lord. That we can receive life, and not just life, but life more abundantly. Fill our minds with, open up our, with understanding. Open up our minds and give us the understanding. Give us the aptitude that we need, Father God. That we may know your plan, God's plan for this world for Jew and Gentile that's found only in Jesus Christ, your Son, Father God. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins that brings us here together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we've been speaking about over the last, probably about two months now, as we go through this book, 
that Paul's main claim in this book is that salvation does not come through works of the law, doesn't come through any kind of religious effort. It only comes by a man having a true faith in his heart in Jesus Christ, that Christ had paid for his sins, that there is true mercy and grace and forgiveness and new hope that's found in Jesus Christ, that a man's relationship vertically with God the Father is found totally on faith in Jesus Christ the Son. And whoever believes in the Son is right with the Father and receives the Spirit. You cannot truly believe in the Son without receiving of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when a man receives or a woman receives the Holy Spirit, it brings the confidence in, of their salvation, of their forgiveness, that they've been accepted by God on pure faith, that their sins are truly forgiven. It, the Bible actually calls it in the fourth chapter, Abba Father experience, where we really feel like God is our Father now. He's not some strange deity, or some kind of judge, transcendent, but not imminent, not close to us. He's an idea, he's a, he's a, a concept, but he's not real, he's not alive. As Christians, we know how real God is. We know that when we pray, when we cry out to God, He is truly there. When we sing, we know He is there. We know He is with us. We know He's in us now because we've been born again by the Holy Spirit. We know our sins are truly forgiven. It is the greatest joy, Jesus says, a man can have, is to know that his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. But rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice that you're saved. Rejoice that you're redeemed. Rejoice that you will have eternal life with me. That is the greatest joy there possibly could be. And that all comes by faith. But the problem here we have in Galatians is that some people were preaching something contrary to that simple gospel message. And what they were teaching is that faith in Jesus is good. It's just not good enough. That you need to supplement it with being a little more Jewish. Circumcision, uh, food laws, washings, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. Become more Jewish and then you can accept the Jewish Messiah. And Paul would have none of this when he'd been speaking about this. Now both Jew and Gentile come to God the same way. On equal ground, we come only through Jesus Christ. This is the great equalizer. This breaks down every wall of division. It breaks down every prejudice. It brings people together from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It brings us together, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, male and female, uh, the intellect, the ignorant, the prince and the pauper. We can all come together in one little room and worship God with no prejudice in our heart. It's magnificent design by God. And we need to recognize that. And Paul has been establishing this doctrine in this third chapter in several different ways. In the first five verses, he reminds the Galatians that, remember, you receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not by religious works. It's important for us to understand that. And I don't have to go through it again. If you want to, you can go online and listen to it again or study it out yourself. He proves through personal experience that this joy you have, this sense of forgiveness you have, is because what the Holy Spirit has done to you when you accepted Christ through faith. He goes on, as we spoke about two weeks ago, in verses 6 to 14, that he uses Abraham as an example, who also was justified by faith, even before the works of the law, before Moses was ever came around 430 years before that, he was also justified just by faith in God. 
in this great magnificent promise that he was going to make him a great man, a great nation was going to come from him, and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. He was going to believe that. He believed that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in heaven at 99 years old. And his wife was 90. And neither one of them had a child. But he believed. And if you read Genesis 15, when God spoke to him and said, Abraham, I'll be a great reward to you and I'll be a shield about you. Abraham says, how do I know? Since I am still childless. How do I know, God? You don't see it if you don't listen to the text. But he's desperate. Have you ever been desperate? And Abraham's desperate. He's going, God, you're telling me this for almost 25 years. But I'll believe. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. It's easy to believe when things are going well, right? Try to believe when things in life aren't going well. But blessed are those who what? Believe and do not see. It was counted to him as righteousness. So was our salvation. How many people have seen Christ in the last week? Well, don't answer. <laughs> don't we believe, because we heard with the ears of faith one day, that Christ did something for us objectively 2,000 years ago? Not that he just lived. Non-believers believe that Christ lived. But he personally suffered and died. You remember where you were when you heard that good news? And you remember, I believe. My eyes have seen God. You believe in a miraculous story. And it was accounted to you as righteousness, and now you, along with all other believers, have been born again by the Holy Spirit. You believe that Christ personally died for you. Not everybody believes that in the world. Not many people think they need salvation. But we are people that know that we need salvation. But Paul is going to do something, and before I get into it tonight, I do have to say that Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, but specifically 3, is one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament to teach out of. It really is cerebral. You really have to put your mind into this. It is not something you can preach out of and feel. It's not a feel-good message. It's not something where there's some text you can really dig into and like, you know, hallelujah, amen, you can feel it. And some you have to sit back and survey what's being said. And I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, that the only application you can really see is the thought that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. It needs no more application than that. That the reason you can have joy and I can have hope and that we can have happiness and we can have forgiveness is all because Jesus Christ became separate from God on our account. That alone is enough application is to go home, and as I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be speaking about a lot more today and as the weeks go on, is that the greatest thing a Christian can do is spend five or ten minutes in real deep reflection on Good Friday. To really think and contemplate what Christ accomplished on our behalf. That is the greatest application. If we can move God's people just to think with some healthy, rational thinking, of what Christ accomplished for us, our lives will be changed. Our lives would truly and forever be changed in this world if we, come, we become a people that think about what the Bible really says. 
And our Christianity will go from not just singing externally, but singing on the inside of our hearts and giving God thanks and praise in all circumstances of life. And I know in this room there are a lot of circumstances that are represented in this room. People are going through a hard time. Paul is explaining some of the deepest teaching in Scripture. Truth needs to be explained. Paul never threatened anybody into the kingdom. He explained the truth. And he allowed the truth to do what it was meant to do. Set men free. To explain truth, and that's why my objective today is the best I can to explain truth. I read the whole text, even though I'm only preaching on six verses of scripture today, because it said something that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and that is that all those who try to please God through religion. Now he's specifically talking about Old Testament Judaism. Circumcision, the Ten Commandments, uh, new moons, new festivals. There was a, a proper protocol to approach God in the Old Testament. It was designed by God. But all those who try to just please God mechanically, don't miss it. The law is good. Moses was good. But to please God mechanically is if I just go through the routine, God will accept me. Paul says, forget it. You're under a curse. You cannot keep the law. It's not meant to save. It's meant to reveal. And we'll speak about that later on in application. There are two modes the Bible gives us for living as human beings, spiritual. You can live in a state of grace, or you can live under the law. In a state of grace, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's joy, there's salvation, there's eternal life. Under the law is to live under a curse, because that means you have to abide by everything written in Moses' law. It's impossible to keep. It's to live under a burden. It's to live under a threat. It's to live under a heavy load. Remember what Jesus says, All you who are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Come, for, it doesn't work anymore. I've come to bring something and establish something much greater. Faith in me. How important it is that where do we want to live? Do we want to live under grace or do we want to live under law? Understand something. To live under law is to live in this kind of existence. God is the creator and we are the creature. Sounds okay, doesn't it? But that also means that God is the, God is the lawgiver. And what do we do with law? We break it. We fail. That means God is judge. We are spiritual criminals. We live under laws, we live under rules, we live under regulations. It's a constant reminder that we fail to live under law, to live under religion. All of us know if you ever came out of an orthodox background, is to live under a constant reminder that we fail. We live under a constant reminder that I'm human, that I'm sinful, that I cannot do it. it it's to live with hopelessness spiritually. It's to live with fear. It's to live with... An ambiguity. Am I accepted by God? Does He really love me? Does He really forgive me? Is it all worth it? 
That's what it means to live under the law. But to live in the state of grace is to live by faith in the Son of God. It's a constant reminder that Christ redeemed us. That Christ has saved us. That we, it's a constant reminder we're forgiven. That God accepts us. He's not the judge. He's our Father. Big difference. And now what defines us is joy, happiness, hope, a, a sense of self-control that my life is not just opened up to every passion. My life is not opened up to every whim. Now my life is not opened up to every sinful temptation. There is a sense of self-control now. There's a sense I can live this life. There's a sense I can be a husband. There's a sense I can be a son. There's a sense I can be a, 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 a law-abiding citizen now because I've got hope. I've got strength in Jesus. Are you with me? That's a state of grace. And when, and we will fail, it's not hopeless because Christ is always Redeemer. And God is never judge. He's always Father. There's a sense of God's closeness. There's a sense of help. There's a sense of God being compassionate and merciful to us. There's a sense of that when we fail, we don't run from God. We run to God. That's a state of grace. The whole world is either in one or the other. And the only way to be in the other, which is a state of grace, is to come to Christ. Because if people don't even know, even the most hard-headed atheist, who does not believe in God, is under the law. Ignorance of the law is not bliss. People will find out at the end they were wrong. Deathly wrong. Those who come to Christ live in a state of grace. And the greatest part of that grace is when we close our eyes for the last time and we are ushered into the presence of God immediately forever. Undeserving as it is, God gives us salvation. So it's important to understand these before we get into this text because otherwise, if you don't know this background, this text sounds kind of dry. And a matter of fact, it is, if you don't understand. Two definitions before I get into it. We will read the law many times over the next chapter. We have already. The law is basically summed up in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. There are others, but I'll just use those for now. And if one was to maintain an exact obedience to it from the heart, one would maintain and stay in a white right relationship with God. It's too impossible for any man to do except one. That was Christ. To live under the promise, as we're going to read here today, it's analogous of living under grace, is a relationship based on faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And a full acceptance by God the Father because of what Jesus the Son did for us will always be reminded that we're far from perfect. But I don't know about you, but as I get older as a Christian, the more I see my failures, the more I love Christ. Anybody else here? The longer I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian a long time, and God has done great things in my life, He's changed so many things in my life, but I can't help to see some of the flaws that are still there. And I'm just so grateful that Jesus is my Savior. Amen. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But let's get into 
the text. Let's get into these six verses of Scripture. I will comment briefly on the six verses of Scripture, and then I'll lean on application. And please understand something. As we're going through these six, I will do the best I can to make it as relevant as possible. But we are entering into ancient religion. I can't make that too relevant. It's hard. We are entering into Judaism of not just 2,000 years ago, but 3,000, 3,500 years ago. We've got to go back, enter into Moses' religion, and try to make it relevant for 21st century Brooklynites. <laughs> it's not easy. But I want you to know, if you stay with it, you'll realize how relevant it is for your life today. That we were going to find out something about God. That's why today's title is God's Perfect Plan. This is not about... How can I leave church today and have it leave with a feeling? But I hope you feel something. Today's leaving and here, coming here and hearing about God's plan. Can you say that with me? God's plan. We all have plans. Sometimes we think that God is some kind of arbitrary sort of Santa Claus up there, doesn't know what he's doing. He's just trying to answer as many prayers as he possibly can, as quickly as he can. But really, he has no plan. Or he has no purpose. I can assure you that God has a perfect plan. And we will see just a snapshot of it today. So let's think about it as we enter into the religion of the Hebrews 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. Let's spend a couple of minutes today looking at God's perfect plan. And then we'll spend a couple more minutes applying these truths to our life today. And see how relevant it really is. Okay? Stay with me as we start in verse 15. I'll read. <clears throat> to give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. From a purely human example, Paul is going to teach us something about the Hebrew religion. Paul shows the superiority of the promise made to Abraham above the covenant made with Moses and the law. Understand something, these are two different covenants that define all Old Testament religion. If you're going to read the Old Testament, you better understand these two principles, otherwise the Old Testament will mean nothing to you at all. As a matter of fact, people are still reading it and they still have no idea what the Old Testament is about. There are 39 books. You have to understand the principle I will tell you right now if you're going to understand those 39 books. There was a promise made to Abraham, and there was a covenant made with Moses. That defines the whole Old Testament. The promises given to Abraham were, how can you say, the fine print. There was a fine print there that the whole world was going to be blessed with this one man who's 99 years old. His wife is old. They're beyond biological childbearing years, but yet they're believing that in their old age, they're not just going to have a miracle child. But this miracle child is going to turn into a miracle nation and that somehow or another one miracle child is going to come from the miracle nation, Messiah, and bless the whole world with salvation. They're believing in this. They're lunatics. Or they're believers. Because believers are sometimes thought of nuts. Because we believe what God says. But these two understandings, promise of Abraham works by Moses. Under Abraham, God promised to give freely blessings just by faith. And then, 450 years later, Moses comes and he gives the law. And he says, you have to live by this. Well, somebody would say, well, 
what about the promises to Abraham? And God would say, not yet. I'll take care of the promise to Abraham and his seed. When the fullness of time comes, I'll, I'll show you that. But for now, we got some mopping up to do over here. You have to live under this very strict structure of rules, regulations, commandments, stipulations. You have to live under this. Be my people. Be circumcised. I will give you forgiveness as you bring a goat, as you bring a heifer, as you bring a, a, a pigeon or a turtle dove. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you grace. I will watch over you. But you have to obey me without exception. Now, that sounds easy, but understand something. To Abraham, it's unconditional. To Moses, it's conditional. And Abraham, it's totally by faith. In Moses, it's total by obedience. As we recognize, as the years go on, it's impossible to please God through any kind of religion because mankind is just too weak to live under any perfect spiritual moral law. So, Here's the thing about religion. It sounds good when you sign up. But as time goes on, it wears you down. It makes you feel guilty. It constantly reminds you of your inability to keep that which you're supposed to do. But living under a promise is to live under a constant promise that God forgives you, God accepts you, God loves you, God wants you, God cares for you, God is watching over you. To live under that is what Abraham lived under. Now it's important to understand this. You and me, who are Christians today, our faith resembles more Abraham's faith than it does Moses. We live as Abraham lived. We live by faith. Moses and Israel for 1600 years had to live under the law. They had to live under the strict demands of perfect obedience and when they failed they had to go through a long ritual of bringing some kind of dead animal to the temple and being washed of their sins. It was a whole a system that needed to be put in place but you really never felt close to God not the way me and you do as soon as we blow it I can go right to God and say God forgive me forgive me I thank you for Christ I thank you for what he's done I thank you for what he's doing in my life I thank you for the fruit of the Holy Spirit I thank you for joy I thank you for peace I thank you for kindness I thank you for goodness I thank you for self control I thank you for hope I thank you that your mercies are new every morning that's New Testament religion the Old Testament didn't have it so clearly as me and you do. The 1600 years they lived under the strict commands of Moses. Here's the thing, and we'll find this out next week. In Jesus Christ, the promises to Abraham and the law of Moses was reconciled in Christ. The reasons the promises made to Abraham was because the seed was going to come, and the seed was going to live as a man, he was going to live as perfect Abraham, he was going to live as perfect Adam, he was going to live as perfect Israel, he was going to live as perfect Jew, he was going to live as perfect me, he was going to live under the law perfectly, he was never going to fail God at all with one thought, with one intention, with one motive, he never ever broke the law, Jesus Christ was perfectly sinless. And then he offered himself up for you and me. And now the promises made to Abraham can come to us freely because Christ paid for it. It was paid for. Abraham was living in a paid for faith. He was looking forward to Christ. Meaning you look what? Back to Christ. But it was Christ 
both for Abraham and for you and me. Verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, that's Christ. And it does not say unto your offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, unto your offspring, who is Christ. And as I just said, Jesus Christ was going to reconcile both the law of Moses and the promises of Abraham in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. He goes on in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. Here's Paul's reasoning, and I'm going to speak about this more in application. There's a purpose for the Old Testament. And you just can't take out one piece and leave the other piece behind. His opponents that were saying you still needed to keep the law, Paul said, no, you're not reading the whole Old Testament. You're only reading part of the Old Testament. You're only reading the covenant made with Moses. Don't forget about the promises made to Abraham. If you're going to read the Old Testament, you've got to start with Abraham, not with Moses. If you read the Old Testament and you start in Exodus, you're ruined. You're ruined. But if you start in Genesis, where you're supposed to be in the beginning, you'll understand that these promises made to Abraham supersede the law given to Moses. Paul goes back into the Old Testament and he elevates this hidden promise to Abraham that the righteous are righteous by faith. And he lifts it up, he elevates it over the law of Moses. The Judaizers, the opponents of Paul could not see the grace of God that was in Abraham's life because all they could see were the law and the commandments of Moses. They were blinded by religion. How important it is for us to see that. And for 1600 years, they lived as slaves. Verse 16, 18. For if the inheritance comes through war, it's no longer comes to a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The inheritance, the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham and all the promises and to understand something, Paul is given an analogy now because the promises given to Abraham was land. The promises given to Abraham was a new name. The promise given to Abraham was that he was going to be great. The promises given to Abraham is that all the nations of the world were going to be blessed through him. But Paul teaches us, and the New Testament teaches us, that now those promises are eternal life in Christ Jesus. They were all just a temporary blessing, but they all point to the greater blessing of eternal life and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and the subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is joy, which is love, which is goodness and kindness and self-control, and humility, and patience, and long-suffering. This kind of fruit that you, the human soul needs more than anything. I ask you now, how well would your life be right now if for the last 10 years you lived under self-control? If you lived under joy? If you lived under love? If you lived under goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and you lived under a great long-suffering, that means patience with all people, how well would your life be right now? How well would it be if you lived like that the last 24 hours? The point is clear. 
The blessings that now come through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit change a person's whole life. What would you rather have, honestly? Contentment or all the riches of the world? And all the cares that come with it. Think about it. Everybody wants to hit that jackpot. Everybody, how many lottery tickets now don't even show me? <laughs> because you're like, that's it. If I just get it, if I just have that 150 million, it will ruin you. It, you'll have more friends than you'll ever wanted. You'll have more relatives than you ever thought of. It'll hunt you. You'll have to move to another side of the universe to get away from everybody and try to enjoy it. I saw, uh, well, that's application. But anyway, 90% of people that hit the lottery are broke in five years. Did you know that? 90%. Statistic. 90% of people that hit the lottery. That's what the news person told me yesterday. So I don't know how true that is. But the point is clear. The blessings that came to Abraham, the blessings that come to you and me by faith, are the greatest blessings a man and woman could ever have. A man and woman could ever have. Religion doesn't do that. There's a place for the law. There was a place for religion. We're going to find that over the next two or three weeks. But for today's message, understand something. What Christ did for you and me brings in something greater. It's called here the promise. Paul alludes to it. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit and all the ministry of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. That is what Paul is talking about here. That is what is valuable. Verse 19, and we'll close with verse 19 and 20, and I'll do a little application. He says, Why then the law? He says, It was added before, because of transgressions, until the offspring should come unto whom the promise had been made, and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Understand something here. A natural question would arise if you were a Jew who believed in Christ and all of a sudden the law which defined you as a nation for 1600 years you are saying doesn't exist anymore. You don't need to live under that anymore. And I've shared over the weeks and over the months how difficult it is for many of us coming out of orthodox backgrounds. You know, when you worship in an orthodox way and all of a sudden you find salvation in Jesus Christ, it's hard to give up the icons in the house, it's hard to give up the rubber figurines, it's hard to give up the rosary beads, it's hard to do something, that's all you know. It's hard to give that up. It's part of our life. And for someone to tell you, you don't need those things no more, it's very difficult. That just faith in Jesus is all I need now? Yeah. Trust in Christ. Give me the Bible and give me Jesus is all I need. But it's very difficult when you are raised up in a certain orthodox way and then you come to know Jesus to give it all up that's all you know just think how hard it is to be a Jew 2,000 years ago just to give up the law of Moses very difficult but Paul gives us a teaching here in verse 19 he says why then the law because it's a, a rhetorical question if you're telling me Paul that a man's saved just by faith in Christ then what do I do with the law of Moses it defines me as a nation. It defines me as a human being. Everything, my whole life, my family's life, the whole nation is built around the Ten Commandments. It's built around the temple. It's built around the sacrificial system. It's built around the Sabbath. It's built around the Twelve Feasts. It's built around the festival. It's built around all this. So what are you telling me to do? Just throw it away? Yeah. Christ has come. 
He's greater than every festival. He's greater than every Sabbath. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Michael's death. He's greater than everybody. Just believe in Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's truly the Son of God. We don't need it anymore. And he'll teach us over the next couple of weeks of the rest of this chapter what the law of Moses was all about. But for here now, he's saying it's to show his transgression. The law, the moral law of God was to show mankind's need of a Savior. <coughs> The Ten Commandments doesn't save, it condemns. I have a hard time when I hear people say, not a hard time, I'm burdened when people say, well, I live by the commandments. That's a loaded question, because only Jesus can live by the commandments. The commandments are there to show us that we need to save. We cannot keep... Verse 20 is a tricky question. It's a tricky uh, verse. But this is what it means. This intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Stay with me before I get into application and close. Understand something. What Paul is saying here, the promise to Abraham is greater than the giving of the law to Moses for this reason. When God gave the law to Moses, he spoke to an angel. God spoke to an angel. The angel spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to the people. The promise given to Abraham was God spoke face to face with Abraham. And in this way, the promises are greater than the law because when it came to having a mediator, there was no mediator. God is one. He spoke directly to Abraham. This elevates the promises of Abraham over the law of Moses in another way. This is Paul's brilliant reasoning. When it comes to application, it's a little easy. Very technical as we get go through this chapter. I know that. I try to do it the best I can as I pray through it. But understand something. The church is a teaching institution. I don't know if you know that. How many people like to go to church? We are first and foremost the pillar and foundation of the truth. Truth needs to be explained to be experienced. If you want to experience the power of truth, one needs to hear it and be explained to it. But Paul's opponents were taking the law and were not explaining it. They were saying, just do it. It was more of a threat than it was a blessing. Because there's no explanation. Paul is explaining the truth. The church is an institutional truth-bearing of God. We teach the truth. We explain the truth. Then we can apply the truth and the truth can do what it says it will do. It will set men free. How important it is to know that. Over the weeks it's going to sound like the, the application is uh, very redundant. But really it's the different nuances of the same truth that we need to hear over and over and over and over again. I need to know the difference between faith and works. I need to know the difference between law and grace. I need to know the difference between religion and relationship. And we learn that over and over and over again as we hear it and we reapply it to our lives week in, week out, day in and day out. Verse 17 says something very insightful. Most people are going to miss this. They don't understand it. I'll do the best job I can to apply it. He says this. This is what I mean. Easier said than done. The law, 
which came 430 years afterwards, did not know the covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise annul or void. Let me explain something about historical redemptive progression. How many people have ever heard that expression? Four hands. There's a reason. It's academic. But there's another reason. It is hard to understand. I will break it down. For me and you just to open up the Old Testament and read it is a great mistake. Not to understand what God's perfect plan is. You'll get lost in a maze of teaching and laws and commandments and have no understanding how to apply it to your life. The Bible is set forth in such a way, in such a progressive way, that first it came through promises that Christ was going to pay for the seed later. Then after the promises, God set up a whole nation, the nation of Israel. He gave them all these laws that structured them. But still they couldn't live without the promise because Christ didn't come and pay for those promises yet. So they had to live as a nation under the laws. Very exacting, very burdening, very overbearing. Then Christ the seed comes. And Christ reconciles the law and pays for the promises. Now we don't live by the law, it's dissolved. Now the promises come into the New Testament. I am a New Testament believer. You don't live under the laws anymore. We live by the promises that the seed of Abraham came and paid for. Now please understand something. When you hear a man say, open up the Deuteronomy 28, you better understand the principle I just told you. Because Deuteronomy 28, and televangelists love to use this all the time, I lay before you life and death. Obey and be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed. Well, they don't understand the principle Paul just taught us. If they did, they would understand Jesus Christ became my Deuteronomy 28 curse. When Jesus Christ came, he modified the whole Old Testament. When Christ came, Judaism was turned upside down. The whole Old Testament was turned upside down. The promise by faith in Abraham's seed has changed the whole world religion once and for all. Jesus Christ is our curse. That's what Paul said in verse 14. Jesus Christ became our curse. Jesus Christ is Deuteronomy 28. It's through his obedience that I'm saved. It's through his obedience I'm blessed. And it's because he took my curse, I live forever. That is called hermeneutics. It's something that's thumbed down today as heady as academic, as unnecessary, as almost unspiritual. Could you imagine that? What Paul is teaching now is unspiritual because it's too heady. It's too theological. But yet it's all Jesus. It's a principle of historical redemption progressive. God was doing something through the Old Testament. And now that Christ came, the Old Testament will never ever, ever be the same again. For a man to go into the Old Testament and pull out a teaching that was meant for a Jew 3,500 years ago and tell a Christian to live by it is heresy. You don't do that. You've got to take that, what Paul just did, and said the Old Testament law now has to go to the cross and bow down to Christ Moses has to bow down to Christ. 
Deuteronomy 28 has to bow down to Christ. Every Old Testament prophet and all his teaching has to bow down to the cross because Jesus Christ just modified the whole thing. And now the promises, those little stipulations that the whole Jewish nation missed, but Paul didn't. He said, wait, 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 wait. I know the law of Moses is good. I know it's spiritual. I know it's perfect. But we're unspiritual. We're unperfect. But there's this stipulation that the righteous will live by faith. I know. I'm a teacher. I get excited. Please. Do you know how hard... I was telling John, I was telling my wife this week. It is to teach out of this text. It's so hard that you can go to church for 30 years and never hear a pastor preach exegetically. They'll take a verse of scripture. But they try to explain six verses of scripture, they won't do it. First of all, you have to know how to do it. You have to appreciate what Christ has done. You have to love what Christ has done. You have to love how God promised Abraham something Christ was going to do. You have to love the way God structured his religion. You have to love the way God structured his perfect plan. You have to bow down to the perfect plan of God before you can preach it. Otherwise you just open it up and just want to say anything you want to say. God forgive us. Okay, I'm getting very excited about this. I'll close with this. Okay, verse 19, the law. Why then the law was added because of transgressions? Understand something. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, were put in place not to save men, it was to condemn men. Please understand something. The purpose of the law, as it were, was to lift off the lid of man's alleged respectability. And to disclose what we are, what human beings are spiritually. We're sinful. We're rebellious. We're guilty. We're greedy. We're lustful. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We're self-glorifying. That's what we are. And we're under the judgment and the wrath of God. And when people understand that, Jesus Christ will be the sweetest thing they ever heard. Why do you think we sing? You guys have nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon but come and sing hymns? A sinner has a lot of better things to do. But once you're saved, the name of Jesus becomes the greatest name you ever heard. Because we're not under the judgment of God no more. We're not under the curse of the law anymore. Jesus took every moral failure you ever could ever have. Please, when people say I'm living by the commandments, I'm like, oh, I, I gotta have a, I need to talk to you. I, I need an hour or two with you. I gotta explain something about the commandments. Let me give you the New Testament perspective on the Old Testament commandment. It's there to show us we're failures. That's what it does. But now, as a failure, and I'm stripped of my pride, and I'm stripped of my, my, my self-dignity, not my God-dignity, my self-dignity, thinking, thinking myself special, when you're stripped of that, and vulnerable, and broken, you can go to God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me, God. I've broken the law. And what does he do? 
He saves us. Churches today, Protestant, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, people went today to churches all over the world. Our families went. And they went and heard a message of the law. They have no understanding of grace. They're going to church week in and week out, and they're under the curse of the law. They're not in a state of grace. Because the law is not preached. The law is not explained. The law leads you to Christ. And I ask you today, are you in a state of grace? Are you under the law? Is there a secret hope in your heart? I ask everybody here today, please everybody, look me in the eye. Is there a secret hope that God's going to accept you if there is a God? You might not even believe there's a God, but maybe if there is, He'll accept me because I'm good enough. The whole Old Testament says you're not. Good Friday says you're not. The resurrection says you're not. But I ask you this. Are you humble enough and broken enough to say I need help in my life? That's why Jesus said the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drug addicts and the drunkards and the adulterers, they go to heaven first because we know we need God in our life. We know it. Where are you today? If you want to come into a state of grace, close your eyes. Please pray this prayer with me if you want to enter out of life and out of death and into life. If you want Jesus to really come into your life and to forgive you and to change you and to give you happiness and joy and to treat you as a son or a daughter, please pray this prayer. Lord God, I thank you that there is forgiveness in Jesus. I know today I am a sinner under the law, under the wrath of God. But I thank you today that I found out that Jesus Christ is my promise. That he came and paid the price for me. He removed the curse on my behalf. He became a curse for me. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. I repent of my sins in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.